I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Hi, Seth. Happy fall. Thank you. It's getting a lot cooler here. I don't know what it's like in Virginia. I'm so glad. It's finally, well, in Virginia, in the transitions to fall and spring, we have a fake version of each one. <laughs> so we had like four or five days where we're like, oh, fall is here. And then summer came back with a vengeance for a few days. But the enemy has been defeated. <laughs> and, and fall is here. So in light of this new season, I have a very important question for you. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to eat a grilled steak or eat a steak shish kebab that also has your favorite vegetables on it? This is a lower stakes question it than is. most it really of is. the ones we ask. <laughs> and I was like, this is, a, this is a good time for us to ask something a little easier. Okay. Yeah, and then here I am sitting here really thinking about this one. <laughs> I think I'm just going to go with the grilled steak. I love I love grilled steak. And I've been slowly getting better at grilling steaks myself. I had a couple of mishaps in which I either like barely cooked it or torched it. So I've been getting better. Yeah. At a at a good medium steak. Nice. See, I would go with the shish kebab. Both because the flavor mix with the vegetables. Okay. Also because it does the hard work of cutting the steak for you. <laughs> well, presumably you did it before you cooked it. But now you can just pop off the hunk of meat, pop it right in your mouth, and you're good to go. <laughs> What's your vegetable, though? So I'd go with some nice pieces of red onion, because I think they add some nice flavor while they're cooking. And I'd go with some bell peppers, because I think that they're like really delicious and then one of the favorite my favorite things that we've done lately that i think we're going to do sometime this week is add a little parsley to the top too like fresh parsley it's a nice freshness mm, yeah on top of what can be sometimes really heavy in steak but anyways now i'm real hungry so maybe you should go ahead and read our passage for us i'm interested to see what this has to deal with our uh, question, if any, if anything. I think I might need to ask for forgiveness after you figure it out, but... Okay. Okay. You will figure it out. This is Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When the king and Haman came in for the banquet with Queen Esther, the king said to her, This is the second day we've met for wine. What is your wish, Queen Esther? I'll give it to you. And what do you want? I'll do anything, even give you half the kingdom. Queen Esther answered, If I please the king, and if the king wishes, give me my life. That's my wish, and the lives of my people too. That's my desire. 
We have been sold, I and my people, to be wiped out, killed, and destroyed. If we simply had been sold as male and female slaves, I would have said nothing. But no enemy can compensate the king for this kind of damage. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is this person, and where is he? Who would dare do such a thing? Esther replied, A man who hates an enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman was overcome with terror in the presence of the king and queen. Furious, the king got up and left the banquet for the palace garden. But Haman stood up to beg Queen Esther for his life. He saw clearly that the king's mood meant a bad end for him. The king returned from the palace garden to the banquet room just as Haman was kneeling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Will you even molest the queen while I am in the house? The king said. The words had barely left the king's mouth before covering Haman's face with dread. Harbona, one of the eunuchs serving the king, said, Sir, look, there's a stake that Haman made for Mordecai, the man who spoke up and did something good for the king. It's standing at Haman's house, 75 feet high. Impale him on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the very pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger went away. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I get where the question came from. Yeah. Okay. An unfortunate Haman kebab at the end of this <laughs> the end of this passage. Is there anything in particular about the CEB that you liked in this passage? My choice for the CEB, other than it being my go-to translation, was because this is a really important story. And I wanted to focus on the narrative and focus on hearing the text read in language that's easy to receive and understand and kind of process. Because one of the things the CEB does really well is break up what can be, in some translations, really long run-on sentences into clearer, more concise sentences, or even just shorten them up a little bit and break them into multiple sentences, which I think helps with reading mm -hmm. a lot. But before we get too far into this passage, I want to hear from you about what things stood out to you. I always think that the king in Esther is just a doofus. I don't know what word to use. Like, <laughs> like sometimes I want to make fun of the disciples in the in the Gospels for just kind of asking dumb questions or like not understanding. And then there's the king of like an entire kingdom who's just he's just like oblivious. Like he, Esther tells him about how her people like are gonna die, and he's just like, oh. Who is this person and where is he? Who would do such a thing? I'm like, wow, just oblivious can this man be? Yeah. That's always the first thing that, that strikes me. Yeah, right under his nose. This is all happening until Esther pointed it out. What strikes me later is when he returns from the palace garden to the banquet and Haman's kneeling on the couch. And then he, like, he, again, he's like confused. He thinks that Haman is molesting the queen while, like, he's in his house. The last thing he does, they're like, well, there's this big stake. What if we impaled Haman on it? And he just says, sure. 
Like, he's just such an easy person to, like, manipulate, it seems like. Hmm. Like, he just... You you give him a suggestion, and he's just like, yeah, sure. Like, that sounds good to me. Yeah. He's like, I have a great idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just takes credit exactly. for it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting... I don't know if we have the time to go into that, but that's an interesting angle to take on the Book of Esther in general, is who can manipulate King Aswaras the best and yeah. Esther gets the last laugh. Yeah. But I think before we get too much farther, Seth, and especially since it connects to some of the things that you said, I want to talk a little bit about the story of Esther. It's our first time visiting it on the podcast and we pick up like two thirds of the way through. This is like towards the climax of the story. So I want to give a little bit of context. A lot of this comes from Sydney White Crawford's commentary on esther from the women's bible commentary just to be clear crawford was real helpful in helping me consider how this story comes together so more or less this story is taking place during the persian empire it's a very specific time period and we heard of king aswaras in the capital of susa and Essentially, the king summons his queen, Queen Vashti, to come before his court and display her beauty. And she's like, no. (laughs) And he's so mad that he banishes her. But after a while, he gets lonely. (laughs) So the nobles around him are like, basically, we should host like Persian Idol to find the most beautiful, talented woman in all the land to be your new queen so they welcome all of the eligible virgins in the kingdom to become part of king Aswaris's harem essentially and this is at this point in the story this is where we hear about esther and her guardian and relative mordecai these are two of the main characters they're both jewish living as jewish minorities in this persian empire Esther is essentially winning everyone over. And when she finally gets her turn to be with King Ahasuerus, she becomes queen. Like, she just wins him over so quickly. And after this happens, there, there's an important moment where Mordecai, her guardian, discovers a plot to kill the king. He tells Esther, Esther, because of Mordecai, saves the king's life, which just earns her more favor with the king. Later on, though, the king promotes Haman, the Agagite, to the position of essentially his right-hand man, his number two person who organizes a lot of the things that actually happen in his city and in his kingdom. And Haman demands that all the people bow down to him. Mordecai is one of the people who refuses to do so. And Haman's so mad that he doesn't seek to just get revenge on Mordecai, He seeks to essentially wipe out and slaughter all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And again, Mordecai learns of this plot, this time on his own life rather than the king's life, and turns to Esther. The rest of the story is essentially her uncovering Haman's plot and taking risks herself to like come unannounced and uninvited before the king, to invite the king and Haman to come eat with her, And then we get to this moment where she exposes Haman's plot 
before the king. Mm-hmm. And as we hear, Haman suffers a very painful death as a result. The death that was intended for Mordecai becomes Haman's death. So essentially, at the end of the day, Esther saves the Jewish people with Mordecai's help, of course. But she's the title character. She becomes the main figure. Stands out in the Hebrew Bible as a woman who takes these kinds of steps. And that's Esther's story. So, Seth, when you hear that, and you hear, you remember what we already read, is there anything else that stands out to you about this story and some of the things that may have come up in our reading? Yeah, it strikes me both what position she's been put in as kind of someone who's seemingly like objectified by the king, but then the way that she uses her position like both to save the king's life, but also to save the lives of all these all these Jewish people throughout this entire kingdom. It's her position that lets her be close to the king, but it's also that position that equips her to like to save all these people and to take this kind of massive risk too. Like if I if I remember from the story, when she confronts the king like uninvited that's like almost dangerous like if he doesn't want to see her that that could be her life on the line yeah i mean we saw or we heard at least what happened to queen vashti before and for her to come uninvited and demand something of him would have been very risky for her esther is a really unique book because it is in some ways the origin story of a Jewish festival called Purim. And this festival is also about kind of this story. It's the festival celebrating (laughs) the Jewish survival in the Persian Empire. And honestly, no one really knows. It's like a chicken and the egg kind of situation. No (laughs) one knows which one came first. But regardless, the festival and the book of Esther have become totally linked. Esther is read in its entirety in the evening synagogue service, Mm -hmm. every Purim. And this festival is, it's so interesting. I think, and I think that's really a lot about what this story is about. You know, Purim is a, I think of all the Jewish festivals, at least of which I'm aware, it's one of the most celebratory. It's almost like a carnival style. And children bring noisemakers. And every time, basically every time Haman's name is read, the people in the congregation stomp their feet or like boo and hiss. (laughs) Like there's this active just repulsion to him. And interestingly, Haman is kind of the reason for the name for him. Uh, because it's related to the word in Akkadian for lots, like the casting of lots, where essentially they would roll roll dice more or less to make important decisions. Haman used dice, he cast lots, to decide on the date that he was going to execute the Jewish people. And so they took that name, or that word, and reclaimed it, to be the name of this festival where they celebrate their own survival. And this is truly a huge party. There's a spot in the Talmud 
that commands adult Jews to drink so much wine on Purim that they cannot tell the difference between blessed by Mordecai and cursed be Haman. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all this background information comes from Erdman's Dictionary on the Bible, but I love that fact because it is a true celebration, a, you know, a, a rebelous <laughs> celebration of God. their own survival. And that's what the Book of Esther is intended to establish. And that's how it functions, is it establishes at the end of the story these practices that are still in place among the Jewish people today. So it's just a fat, I don't know, even in the 10 verses we read, wasn't there just like, there was accusations of like coming on to the queen there was un <laughs> uncovering a murder and like genocide plot there was execution by impaling on a 75 foot pole like <laughs> i just think it's it's a bonkers <laughs> story but it's all behind this narrative of celebrating survival in unexpected ways I don't know. I know I know most of this, you know, story section has just been like background and context, but I think we need it to get into this passage that comes right in the middle of Esther. Yeah. It's such a great literary piece, which sometimes like we we can tend to forget that. And there's been a lot of work done both on the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament to try and reclaim some of that, but Esther just seems to me like one of the best examples of just pure storytelling. I mean, in the in the entire biblical corpus, like it's just such a good story. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the only books of the Bible, if not the only book of the Bible, that doesn't include God as a character. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. In all these stories, this is a story of God's people that makes no mention of God whatsoever. Which I think is an interesting portrayal of, of Israel and exile, too, and under, under Persian rule. But to be mindful of our time, Seth, I want to transition to a conversation about what's the point. And I'm curious to talk to you about this, because I think the festival of Purim speaks to the celebrations of an oppressed people celebrating how what was intended for their demise became the instrument of their survival. There's something there that I don't know that we can always relate to, especially you and me, because we're not part of persecuted people groups. In very few ways are we considered minorities, and if we are, it's usually in ways that actually give us privilege, like people who are, you know, seminary educated or, you know, on clergy tracks, those kinds of things. But I'm I'm interested to hear from you, Seth, about ways that we could think about how we might practice some of our own traditions where something that was intended for our downfall is actually something that we celebrate. It's something that becomes a source of great pride for us. Does anything come to mind for you like that? And I know it's not quite, it might not quite be on the level of like literal survival <laughs> or escaping genocide. I understand that. But I think that transition for us is important, how our narratives and our, our own origin stories even try to reclaim and repurpose some of these things that were intended for our harm. I count myself lucky that I haven't had to experience this, but sometimes 
I think people will, people who have survived a cancer diagnosis will kind of celebrate on the day that they received that horrific news. Mm. Like later, they will, they'll celebrate having beat it. So not on the anniversary of their remission necessarily, but on the anniversary of their diagnosis. That's when they celebrate. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, as an attempt to to sort of reclaim that kind of horrific that that day and all the memories that are associated with it. Yeah. And to both to remember it, not to forget it, but also to add something to that story. As opposed to to celebrating the day of remission that's already so happy and joyful, but to also add on to the joy of that that kind of shock. I'm also thinking of another example from the biblical text of the early church in Antioch where non-Jesus followers, people who didn't follow the way, saw these Jewish people adapting new practices and called them Christians or little Christs (laughs) as kind of a a derisive term. They were trying to make fun of them, put them down. Again, not to the level of no, we're not at Haman's level here, but you know, we now call ourselves Christians because of that same kind of reclaiming of something that was intended to put down, becoming uh, the identity which we claim and hold to together. I, th- I think personally that also relates to my own tradition. Uh, John mm-hmm. Wesley at Oxford and his holy club were called Methodists as a you know, derogatory terms saying they were too methodical. They were too by the book. They were too strict. And that became the label that marked a movement that I'm now a part of today. I think there are a lot of examples like this, but I I really like the example that you gave Seth of these times in our lives where something that we saw as and experienced as painful or at least potentially painful then becomes a source of celebration, a source of gratitude. The last example I'm thinking of is how, you know, for a long time, I thought about the anniversary of uh, when my family had to move from our Mm. home in New York to North Carolina. Me, as a middle schooler, it was really significant. But for my parents, as, you know, full-grown adults leaving their only home for their entire lives for the first time, for a while, that anniversary was really challenging for us. Um, but after a certain point, it became a moment of gratitude and reflection and a lot of conversation about, wow, look at all that's happened to and for our family. And for me, like how different my life might be if that hadn't happened and being grateful for the opportunities that I've had as a result of that change. Um, mm. Those are, the, those are the kinds of things that, that come to mind for me, too. You know, I never knew that Methodism, or the name Methodist, was a was like a slight. Yeah. That was new to me. That's... It makes sense, though, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Lutherans just got named after the guy, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, then the least creative naming ever, right? right? Speaking of Luther, his 
his kind of big idea is this theology of the cross. And I wonder if that also isn't one of the ways in which like in all of the horror of the cross, there's this, there's somehow an overcoming of the horror too. Wow. For, for Luther, when you look at this terrible image of the cross, that's actually where you see God most fully. Hmm. And I, I always call it the, it's the gory glory of the cross. I just wonder if that isn't just if that isn't another place in which we kind yeah. of see this this horrific death and also this new situation that that doesn't necessarily erase it but builds on yeah on that Gosh. kind of first part. <laughs> I honestly can't believe I didn't think of that example <laughs> because it feels so clear that that's an incredible reclaiming of an instrument of demise as a source of pride and as a source of identity. I mean, we wear an instrument of Roman torture around our necks as, you know, as jewelry and (laughs) all these things because (laughs) of that great reclaiming. And I think it's important too, not only to mention the difference between some of these scenarios and the, the experience of the Jewish people in Esther but also to remember that our experience of suffering is so different and removed from the experiences of those who have been oppressed and minoritized and sought out as you know enemies for no reason. The victims of that kind of violence can claim this kind of identity and change and can reclaim these things for themselves. But oftentimes people in power and people with privilege like you and me say, but look how much good came from the suffering that you endured. And sometimes we even say, look how much good came from the suffering that you endured that my people caused. Hmm. And we think we're claiming this tradition when in reality we're perpetuating the same harm and violence that put them in that situation to begin with. And so I, I, I am glad and grateful to claim to claim the cross and to claim the name christian and methodist and to claim these anniversaries of things as like as meaningful turning points but i also think it's important for us to remember that we can we can claim things that are part of our own experience but we really need to be careful pushing those kinds of reclaimings onto others especially if they're part of oppressed groups that was, that was a great disclaimer. Thank you. But yeah, thanks for bringing up Jesus on the cross, which I completely <laughs> forgot. That's, to be clear. That's also, that's also classic Luther. <laughs> Reading the Old Testament be like, how can I fit Jesus into this? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, I think it's it's fair for us to do some of that too. You know, we recognize and celebrate the the Jewish origins of the story and the Jewish culture and celebrations that, that honor it and celebrate it to this day. And that is also not our experience and we don't want to claim that as our own, but I think it, it gives us an important lesson to look at our own lives and think about how we might reclaim again, some instruments of our own demise or of, of demise or pain and suffering in general reclaim them as a source of great pride and a source of our identities. So 
Can I pray for us? That feels like a good place to stop. That would be great. Let's pray. God of Esther, you brought life to your people in exile. Help us to be sources of light and life in the midst of the exiles we experience today. We pray too for the rescue and safety of all those who face violence and genocide. Save them by your action or by ours. Mindful of the many names by which we cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one whose clothing was divided up by the casting of lots, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, where are we going next week? Next week, we're going to the very beginning of Job, another book that we haven't talked about yet on our podcast. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. 